Good morning, everyone. It's very, very good to see everyone this morning. Um, We're going to be picking up where Paul read in the scripture reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, in just a moment. Um, But just in terms of a little bit of review, um, what we're going to be seeing is really a continuation of what what we see at the end of Acts chapter 2. After the initial acceptance of the first sermon that Peter preached about Jesus having died, risen, and ascended to heaven, we see the community of believers devoting themselves to the apostle teaching, the breaking of bread and to prayer. Wonders and signs were taking place through the hands of the apostles. And all those who believed were together, had all things in common. People were selling their property and possessions. And things were being distributed as anyone might have need. So we're going to see that continuing in Acts chapter 4, um, verse 32. And I think something that's important about the way that this is continuing, um, Christians have begun to experience in this context what would be the beginning of severe persecution. And this wasn't hindering God's work in his church in Jerusalem at the beginning of the church, but rather they were continuing in unity and in love and in the practices that had been established at the very beginning. And so the way I've titled this lesson is what we see here is the kingdom community. What are we to look like as a community of believers who are following the Lord and trying to imitate really what we read these Christians were doing at the onset of their faith? And so we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verse 32, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 5, verse 16. And we're going to see in the beginning, in chapter 4, 32 through 37, that there was abundant grace upon them all, as is stated in verse 33. We're going to see great fear in verse 11 come over the whole church because of God's judgment, uh, his very swift judgment against Ananias and Sapphira. And then in verse 12, through verse 16 of chapter 5, we're going to see abundant restoration in their community. So again, what we see here is the kind of unity they had, the generosity, the intimacy they had with one another, the accountability, the fear, and also this, the, the way that they saw the power of the message that they were believing. So let's start reading again, chapter 4, 32 through 37, looking at um, the abundant grace that was upon them all. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what I've emphasized here um, at the beginning is really what's said in verse 32, that the congregation were of one heart and one soul. So this wasn't just that they were spending time together. And really, in Jerusalem, the idea of having a close-knit religious community that is centered around God, really, ultimately, it wasn't a new idea to them, right? Jerusalem was the capital city of their religion, and it was where all the Jewish nation from all over the world would come together to celebrate religious festivals like the Passover, the Day of Pentecost, uh, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. Um, But this was still something very different 
than anything that was possible before or really anything that we've seen before anywhere in the Old Covenant except in the New Testament church now that Jesus has come into the world, died, and risen from the dead. And so again, this is a unity that's not just something external. It's not just that they were enjoying their time together, but it's that they had one heart, one soul. They had one purpose, one kind of attitude toward each other, and all of that, again, was rooted in Jesus. And so again, thinking about the distinction between the fact that they're in Jerusalem, right? And so these are Jewish Christians who are already used to the ideas of community. They were already people that had been very devout even in their Jewish religion. You remember in Acts chapter 2, before Peter, uh, Peter preached his first gospel sermon, um, it mentioned that there were devout men from all nations who were in Jerusalem because of Pentecost. So many of these Christians, it's not as if the idea of being devoted to God was some strange idea or that devotion to God was something that they hadn't done before. So again, this wasn't just new information to them. It wasn't just that they were enhancing their Jewish religion. It's not just that they were changing their practices in some artificial way. But the idea is this was creating an entirely new kind of community that without Jesus, it was impossible to have a community like this or who was united like this. Do you remember in John 13? On John 13, Jesus would say that he was leaving a new commandment with his disciples that they love one another just as he had loved them, and that by this all men would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in John 17, Jesus would similarly say that he was praying for his people, those who would believe the teaching of the apostles, that they would be one just as he was one with his father, that all the world may believe that he was sent from God. Right? So love and unity the two things at the end of Jesus' life in John's gospel, he entrusted to his disciples, and really the two qualities that we see abounding here with the church. So how you see abundant grace upon them all, again, it's not just that they acknowledged in their minds the reality that Jesus had come to the world and died for their sins, but in a very practical and radical way, this had changed them dramatically. And that was obvious in the way that they were using what they had. So again, we see in verse 34, people who were owners of land were selling their property. They were bringing what they had sold, the money from what they had sold, laying it at the apostles' feet, and then they were distributing it to the Christians who had need there. And by the way, just a couple things about this. Remember that in Jerusalem now, there were Christians from all sorts of other places who were not from Jerusalem before. They did not live in Jerusalem before. They did not own anything in the city now you have thousands of people from outside of Jerusalem who because of the apostles' presence now being in Jerusalem and the church beginning here, they're staying in the city. So there are a lot of people who have legitimate needs in the city and the Christians here who live in Jerusalem who had, who had had property are now providing for them. But also selling property in Jerusalem would be substantial for another reason. So property and land in the Jewish culture, had religious ties. An example of this might be, if you remember, 1 Kings chapter 21, King Ahab, who was a very wicked king, he wanted to buy someone's vineyard, if you remember this. There's a man named Naboth, who unfortunately had a vineyard right next to Ahab's capital house. 
And when Ahab wanted to purchase this property from Naboth, and he said, I'll even give you a different property, maybe even a better one, or I'll give you its, its money. And Naboth said, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And so there were religious ties in their law, their religious law that God had delivered to them. This property was viewed as a perpetual inheritance to be passed down religiously from one generation to another. So the land that they were selling, it wasn't as if they had just bought this within their own lifetime, but this may have been a multi-generational inheritance that had been passed down from the time that they came back from Babylonian captivity. And so people like Joseph, Barnabas, and others, this property may have been in their family for hundreds of years. And so for them to just give it up and sell it is extremely significant and says something about their faith and about where they view their life really lies, where their inheritance truly is now that Jesus has risen from the dead. I don't think it's an accident in verse 33. What were the apostles testifying to? What does it say that the power, this great power that the apostles were demonstrating was giving testimony to? It was the resurrection. Is it obvious that for this community, that they really did not think that their life was based in what they owned, where they were, what they possessed? It couldn't be more obvious. Again, especially when you consider how valuable this property was. Another aspect of what makes this interesting it's not just that there's religious ties. It's not just that it's a big deal that they're willing to sell land. Think about in the Jewish nation, of all the places where a Jew could be, to own an inheritance property in the city of Jerusalem. How valuable would that be? That's like cream of the crop. If you're going to have any inheritance in all the world that's in any way related to something, to your religion... Jerusalem, that city, that is the most important and most valuable place where you could own land. And they're selling it and giving it up and distributing it to people who have needs. So again, what you see here is truly radical, practical change because of their faith. Now, there's a word of caution I want to give here. So growing up, like the way that I've filtered this in the past, um, it can be easy in some strange way to actually become impatient and I think even embittered reading these good examples. So if you're like me, sometimes you may read this and you may think like, where is this now? You know, it's like, we need to be this right now. Like, why aren't we doing this? Or you expect this from others or whatever. I do think it's helpful to first recognize how special the circumstances were, right? We're seeing examples of people to where the principles of faith that we are striving to learn and grow into and embrace, God had been for thousands of years trying to set up the most ideal circumstances in Jerusalem at this time where people could obey the gospel and have such a tangible recognition of what they were doing, who they were serving, what had happened. These are people who had seen Jesus, experienced him, these are people who would have been present for his crucifixion. A lot of them would have even witnessed his resurrection. They were seeing the model of the apostles. So in a sense, in a sense, these are very special circumstances. But I think it's important as well that nobody was doing this because of peer pressure 
or because of command or obligation by the apostles. We especially see that with Ananias and Sapphira. You know, this wasn't something they had. Nobody was forcing anyone to do this. And so this was simply things being done because Christians were very genuinely understanding and personalizing the grace of the Lord. The apostles were not commanding anybody to do this. There was no force of pressure other than the fact that they understood what had been done for them. And now they, in turn, were willfully extending that same grace to others as well. And so I say all that to say as well, how do we recreate this? I don't think it's that we try to start new programs or you know, force structures or anything like that. But it's through patient diligence, perseverance, being very proactively encouraging, and taking the initiative in even what may seem like small ways compared to these examples, showing generous grace to others and looking ourselves for needs where we can, you know, again, even if it seems so small, imitate the same grace that we see here. So let's go into chapter 5, 1 through 11. And for the sake of just the overall structure of the lesson, this is where we're going to be spending the most of our time, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So this is where we see there wasn't just abundant grace. There was also great fear that was in this community. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. But Peter responded to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price? And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So verse 11, I think, really emphasizes just how public this was. So not only did the whole church, and again, this would have been tens of thousands of Christians by this point, not only did the whole church hear about this, but the idea in the second half of verse 11 People who weren't Christians yet, who hadn't obeyed the gospel, they were also hearing about these events. And, you know, we'll, we'll get there in a moment, and I'm sure most of us have read this before. But do you think this was a hindrance then? People hearing about this really shocking event, do you think this would slow down or hinder the spread of the gospel? And I ask because I think for me, just, you know, if I were to think about this in my own way of thinking about it, I would think, you know, the shock of this and how, how scary this is, you know, that maybe this would make it actually more difficult for people to want to believe. Um, so we'll, we'll see more about that in a minute. But so Ananias and Sapphira, what do they do? 
they sell a property. So they see everybody else selling property, and I think there's no accident that chapter 4 ends. By the way, this is a bad chapter break because it's just, a, I think, a very continuous flow of events. Barnabas, who was someone so encouraging that the apostles actually renamed him, it was Joseph, and the apostles, because of how encouraging this man was, renamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. So Barnabas, he had property in Jerusalem. He sold it, brought the money to the apostles' feet. So all of this, again, is very encouraging. Ananias and Sapphira seeing this, they also do the same thing. So what do, what do they do exactly? They sell their land or property. They imply or explicitly state that when they give this amount of money now to the apostles, it is the full amount that their property was sold for. When they knowingly have held back a price of the land for themselves. So I think an initial question, did they need to sell their property in the first place? So Peter, t- Peter tells them, you know, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So it's like, you didn't have to sell this even in the first place. And then the second question he says, and after it was sold, was it not under your control? So it's like, look, you could have sold it and you could have just been honest that you want to reserve this much for yourself and just told the truth that, hey, this is a portion, but I still want to contribute to what's happening. So the idea is this was completely unnecessary. There was no reason to do this besides what he brings up in verse 3 that something had gone deeply wrong in Ananias's heart. And it's very insightful that Peter, I think not because of Peter's own perception, but as an apostle, having some special view of what's happening, that God revealed to Peter that Satan filled Ananias's heart to do this deed. And so, why would God do this? I think it teaches us three things, two things for this first point. It teaches us how much God values the unity that we just saw at the end of chapter 4 and what it had been costing God to get to the point of creating this community. But also it teaches us how division begins in communities of Christian, among believers in local churches. How does this happen? Um, So I want to zoom out just a little before we talk about how much God values the unity he had created. There's two times in history with the nation of Israel where God directly killed someone or people when a new era was beginning and where unity was going to be very important in this new era of time. The first one is Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, they're offering sacrifices according to the law. They're doing everything right. They had been doing it in the prescribed manner. And all of a sudden, in chapter 10, they offer strange fire to the Lord, which he had not commanded them to offer. And you guys remember what happened. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died there in the presence of the Lord. And God's judgment in that instance, I mean, they were worshiping. They were offering something to God. And it seems like, man, wouldn't this be just a shock and potentially a hindrance to the joy of what was happening at the beginning of this new era in priesthood? And again, God is causing the nation and for us as well when we read it 
to pause and to think very carefully about what was going on to learn something really critical. When David, hundreds of years later, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the city where it would stay. When David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which later would result in the temple being built, a new era of time is about to begin through David's rule and his son Solomon. They're transporting the Ark on a cart. It stumbles because the oxen kind of lost their balance. And do you remember what happened? Uzzah reached out, he touched the ark, which they were specifically forbidden not to do, and God killed Uzzah immediately, and David actually became angry with God because of that. Didn't mess with the ark for a while because of that, right? So again, shocking, strange, and you think, man, this is, it seems to be a hindrance to this joy, this great, you know, event that is happening to even worship God. Um, But God was willing to do that very openly, very boldly. And again, here, at the beginning of this era, God strikes Ananias and his wife Sapphira very boldly to, I think, again, cause us to slow down, to think very carefully about this. Something similar about these three instances, they're all things that on the surface look good. Uh, Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire. What's the big deal? They're worshiping. And they had been worshiping correctly. Like, why is it so problematic for them to offer this strange fire? Uzzah? I mean, he was trying to save the ark from falling onto the ground. And man, can you think how catastrophic that would be? The ark falls on the ground and like breaks or chips or something? I mean, can you blame him? But again, that's not how God saw it, right? So the point is God is inviting us not to see things from our perspective, but to see things from his perspective. So let's do that. Ananias and Sapphira lived in Jerusalem. They were saturated in God's religion. They would have known about God's ways, reverence, love, everything that constitutes devotion. Ananias had been exposed to it and saturated in it their whole lives. They live in Jerusalem. What does that mean about their interactions with Jesus? Maybe somehow, some way, they were somehow able to avoid any exposure to Jesus in his ministry, but I highly doubt it. I have a feeling Ananias and Sapphira would have definitely have encountered Jesus at some point in their lives. What about Jesus' crucifixion and having heard about that? His resurrection? What about the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2? What about the preaching of Jesus they've heard? All of these things, they are seeing and experiencing these things as tangibly as they could possibly be experienced. How much work had God been doing to get here? God had sacrificed his son publicly to make this community what it was in chapter 4. To get the community and this kind of unity required not only the death of his son, but thousands of years of patient momentum to get to this point. And Ananias and Sapphira, what's happening here? They are deliberately endangering all God's work that he had been doing up to this point. Think about if God would have allowed Satan to plant this seed in this church at this point when for thousands of years this was the culmination of everything that God had ever been doing. With all of this comes a responsibility. Honor what God has done. It is a serious thing to respect the sacrifice, the work, 
the time that God had invested, they see the community that's around them to be so high-handed and bold in this. God is right to do this because God is protecting his investment. God is protecting this community from Satan's infiltration. And how does division begin among brethren? You know, I think there's the more visible division where brethren may be unkind to each other, unwilling to work together. Maybe there's arguments, disputes, or maybe somebody ends up falling away doctrinally and they stop believing the truth and they want to believe something else and they separate from their brethren. In any of those instances, how does it happen? It starts with someone's hidden intentions with God first. Before anybody sees anything visible, the seed of division starts first in how someone views God. And the pride or the competitiveness that may be driving what on the surface might look like a righteous deed to the eyes of people, if intentions and thoughts toward God have already been divided from the cross, if those things stay and continue in that same way, division among brethren will follow. So verse 3, for Ananias to get away with this, the seed of division would inevitably be planted and the beauty of what this church was in Jerusalem would be wrecked and it would be divided. And I think again, what we'll see is that God, God's work in doing this boldness of this was not in vain. So again, we see great fear come over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And I think this teaches the value of mercy. Because I think when we're really trying to see things through the cross, and we're not forgetting what Jesus has done and who God is, I want to ask it this way. Should it be more shocking that God swiftly judges sin? Or should it be more shocking that God patiently shows mercy? What should be more shocking? Should it be shocking when the wages of sin is death and God pays what is due immediately and calls in the debt? Why should that be surprising? No, what this great fear meant is people understood the seriousness of how valuable mercy is. Because just like us reading this, you imagine people thinking like, whoa, I have definitely been guilty of the same kind of thing. You know, so this is meant to cultivate more humility, not that I'm going to hide away and try to do an even better job of hiding my attentions. Maybe I won't interact with the apostles anymore. No, it's learn the value of mercy. Don't take it for granted. Be amazed that God would be willing to be patient with anybody and respect the price that was paid to give mercy in the cross. The irony is the less value we place on mercy, the nearer we are to sin. The more we see our need for mercy and value it, the farther we are from Satan. Um, So I think practically what this looks like is humility, intimacy, and honesty. I don't think, again, the idea is people were trying to separate from the apostles and say, wow, this, this is not for me. But rather it's greater humility that God cultivates in his church more intimacy and accountability with each other, and more honesty. I think this would have created in a practical way more confession, more prayers for each other, more need for me to confess to you something and you to confess me to something and us to bond over our seriousness, to get away from sinful practices, and again, to take those things seriously. 
And I think it teaches us finally that apathy towards sin, it destroys a a church's identity, work, and its unity. Dealing with sin is always difficult. You know, I don't think God was in heaven enjoying this process or enjoying the situation, right? I don't think Peter, in seeing Ananias fall dead before him and then Sapphira afterwards, enjoyed anything about that. But sin is a serious problem. And what sin does against God and his purpose and his community is a serious thing. And so apathy towards sin, it destroys a church's work, identity, and unity. And we just need balance in these things. I think it's amazing that at the end of chapter 4, we see an incredible degree of grace, and it's so inspiring. But what I think is amazing, that as encouraging as that grace was in the church, that wasn't invested into a degree where they were afraid or at least where God was afraid, to act against sin in the situation. And so only in Jesus do we find a careful balance of unfathomable grace, but also strict judgment against sin. And again, without Jesus, we'll never find balance in that. And that's the importance of the fact that they were centering themselves on the person of Jesus and who he was. This is also why church discipline is so important. 1 Corinthians 5 um, it's not just for the sake of the sinner. So in this situation, God administered judgment and Ananias and Sapphira, they did not repent. So did it work? Did God's way work? Because they were lost. And I think a lot of times with church discipline and practicing disfellowship, we could think, well, if we do this, maybe it'll just scare them away or you know, maybe ah, we don't have a close enough relationship for this to be effective. And all those are important factors, and I think the more invested we are in one another, the more effective things are for the sake of the sinner who we're trying to reach. But as far as the purpose of what 1 Corinthians 5 says about church discipline, is it's not just for that person, but it's for the church itself. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, right? So when we need to practice 1 Corinthians 5, one of the most important aspects of it is we as a local body need to have fear of where sin leads and recognize the seriousness of what constitutes our relationship with God. So let's look at the last section here with the abundant restoration that we see continuing in the church here. So verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However... The people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on the cots and pallets, rather laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. By the way, verse 16 should sound very familiar. Um, We've seen in Matthew, so on Wednesdays, we're studying Matthew, just kind of going through it um, section by section. And sometimes there will be these summary statements about Jesus' ministry, that people were coming to him from all the surrounding regions, and you know there were epileptics, blind, lame, and demon-possessed people, and they were all being healed. And then it'll kind of just periodically, again, insert these summary statements of, yep, Jesus just doing these things and people from all over were coming to them. And so I think the idea of this, first of all, is Jesus was still active, alive, 
and ministering. This isn't the apostles just acting on their own power. This is Jesus marking them and working through them and showing the authority that he had given to them. So again, this is something that's emphasizing that this was at the hands of the apostles. Acts is a very important book to really clearly point out the authority that the apostles had very uniquely and that miracles were tied back to the apostles, physical miracles like laying hands on someone, they're healed of affliction, demons, and all that. Um, Acts will be careful to account for the fact that if you see anybody with any miraculous ability, the apostles had first laid hands on them. We'll see that um, in chapter 6 as well in a little while, Lord willing. But again, the apostles are being marked out, not just as people to be trusted with this doctrine about Christ, but that the teaching that they were carrying held the power of Jesus himself, the restoring power, right? So we've talked about in the past that even Jesus' miracles, it wasn't just to heal people alone and to serve people in that way, but it was to point out something about the power of the teaching, something that's actually still very relevant for us, right? That the teaching can make us whole. Um, And that marked a critical separation in a time where there were two religions that God had established, coinciding really at the same time. Look at this in Acts chapter 13. I think this is maybe an important reference point for this. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 through 39. It says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. And so for the apostles to be performing these miracles, these wonders, to be doing it so publicly, and again, be doing this at a time where there's Jews who don't believe, there's Jewish Christians who don't believe, who's telling the truth? For the apostles to be performing miracles very clearly, very publicly marks, they have the truth. And that truth carries a power that the law of Moses does not have to restore and provide according to God's promises. And then it says, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. And we don't see a specific number here. The last thing we've seen was 5,000 men, not including women and children. So I think the idea, this is just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And the gospel is this great conquering force in the city of Jerusalem at this time. So going back to the question earlier, God striking Ananias and Sapphira down and how shocking that is, and I'm imagining even like how uncomfortable that would be, was that slowing down the progress of the gospel? It was enhancing it. It was enhancing it. There's brethren I've heard in the past, there's a specific brother named uh, Larry in Minnesota. Um, Larry is a very, very encouraging guy. The first time he visited um, one of the congregations in Minnesota, not, not the one where I was from, but um, in the Twin Cities area, Northwest, um, the first time he visited that church, the elders were announcing that the church needed to disfellowship from uh, a brother who was not responding to exhortation or rebuke and was choosing to live in sin. And you think, wow, you know, for that to be announced publicly, that might be something that's going to drive people away. No, Larry... <laughs> was drawn further in because what he saw is here's a group of people who really take the Bible seriously and are really willing to do 
whatever God says, even if it's difficult. But then there's other people I've heard of who say, no, you shouldn't have, shouldn't have done that. I mean, that's going to frighten, that's going to scare people away. You've heard me say this before, but it's amazing what a good heart will do. A good heart is seeking freedom from sin. A good heart will recognize that to be free from sin means there needs to be judgment against it. And as important as grace is, grace does not validate someone living in sin and choosing to forsake the Lord. So a good heart will be drawn closer to God because of greater assurance of godly accountability, because a good-hearted person is seeking freedom from sin. They don't want sin in their life. They don't want to play around with it. They don't want to be around people who are going to overlook it and be apathetic about it. They want to be in a community of people who are diligently seeking not only grace, but seriousness and gravity about the problem of sin. And I think this speaks to something that we need to take note of as what's intended to be a pattern. And I want to speak about this carefully. Um, I've been in a study in the past that was actually very discouraging to me when we were studying some things in Acts. Um, The person leading the study said, if we do the same things that they were doing in the book of Acts, we will get the same results, right? And a few people in the class were like, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, you move on. And so I think like, well, for me, I'll explain why that was discouraging. This was when I was living in Alabama and I was having studies with people, trying to meet people. Nobody was being baptized. Um, you know, and I was having, you know, continuous studies with people, but nobody, nobody was being baptized. And so in my mind, I was like, well, that's really discouraging because I must be doing something wrong. Like, I don't know the magic words to say. I'm, I'm trying to read the Bible with people. I'm, I'm trying to have the conversations I need to have, but I must be doing something wrong. Or maybe God's not, you know, maybe I'm not in God's favor. I don't know. So it's very discouraging for me. Um, so I think we have to be careful and recognize here are very special circumstances where people were hearing the gospel for the first time where God had been setting up this culture again for thousands of years so that as many people as could believe as possible would believe. Just a lot of special things about this, right? To maximize conversions. And I think in other places where they go out and they preach in Gentile cities, you know, it's very similar. People are hearing the gospel for the first time. Now, what about after these first fruits, so to speak, have been redeemed? What about after the initial converts in any of these cities, the Christians now who are going to live there and people have heard the gospel and, well, now the work of patience begins, right? And I think we see with like the churches in Revelation, sometimes there are groups that are trying their best to endure and it's not for any lack of zeal. It's not for any lack of passion or commitment to God. They're just not able to be converting many people around them. But this is what God wants though, in every community where there are Christians. Even if in our community we exhaust every option and nobody responds, does God still want everybody to respond? Even if we exhaust all options and it seems like nobody cares, is God working to help people to care in our community? So again, we want to be balanced in this. I don't want to idealize this in a sense where it's like we need to be exactly like this and we need to be filling these pews within the next month. So nothing like that. 
But ideally, God's church is meant to be a people who are very concerned about the lost in their community and who are very proactively trying to share the gospel in whatever way they can with the people around them. And if we lack evangelistic passion, there may be something deeper that's wrong with the basis of our understanding of the Lord and our unity together. Ideally, what we see here is the unity that they were having the grace that was among them, the fear that came from this, was only further motivating the spread of the gospel, the teaching and the living it out so that other people could hear and respond. So that's, that's where we'll stop the lesson for this morning. But if you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel and you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, dying on the cross and raising from the dead to free you from sin, I would encourage you not to wait. Um, Don't take God's mercy lightly. Don't expect tomorrow when it's not promised. Respond urgently. And if there's anything else we can do for you in the same way, I would encourage you again, don't take God's mercy lightly. Don't put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Be right with God. Be right with his people. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing. Invitation song.